the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was lucky enough to interview Tom Harbour, CEO of the charity Learning With Parents. And I tell you what, it is a cracker. But before that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by School Exams. As long-time listeners may remember, School Exams is a platform offering high-quality exam practice and top-class video support. As I mentioned on a previous episode, for a limited time, due to very generous support from the commercial sector, School Exams are able to offer fully funded access to their platform for all students in years 5, 6, 10 and 11. And if that wasn't good enough, as an added bonus due to concerns raised by teachers, this offer has been extended to include Year 7 students as well. Access is available right now and live until the end of 2021, so all through the summer break. And with the summer break in mind, schools' exams have developed a highly focused six-week GCSE summer catch-up course, which is just plug-and-play for students. You can have accounts set up within a day, and you simply provide students with their login to work through their course in their own time over summer. No setup required from the schools. Now, this is the best bit. You're going to love this. No payment or ongoing commitment is required. Setup takes just 24 hours, so you can get the students set up for use through the summer break already for their start in September right away. If you want to take advantage of this exclusive offer, you just need to email info at schoolexams.co.uk. That's info at schoolexams.co.uk and there'll be a link to that email address in the show notes. Back to today's episode with Tom Harbour. As I mentioned at the start, Tom is the CEO at Learning With Parents. Regular listeners to the podcast might recall that I was lucky enough to attend Tom's session at the virtual MA conference earlier this year, and I absolutely loved it. The session was all about how schools can engage parents in their children's learning and certainly dispelled a few myths that I held to be true. About two minutes into Tom's session, I knew I needed to get him on the podcast. Unfortunately, he was kind enough to accept my invitation. So in a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. What's the difference between parental involvement in school versus parental engagement in learning? What are some of the things schools typically do that might not lead to engagement in learning? And what are some of the things that schools could think about doing instead? How can schools help reach the hard-to-reach families? Does Tom think the pandemic has impacted either parental involvement in school or parental engagement in learning? And what are some of the key barriers for parents getting involved in their child's maths? 
I absolutely loved this conversation and I hope you will too. It's the perfect way to end this season of the podcast and I'll be back at the end with a few takeaways of my own. But for now, let me shut up and let me instead interview, uh, introduce sorry, Tom Harbour. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, Tom, so we start the show as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Yeah, thank you, Craig. Um, I feel you've you've sort of got me cornered on this first question, and I'm, I'm hoping not to start too controversially. Um, I, so a couple of years ago, we, we thought about who we wanted to be as Leonardwood Parents as a charity and our sort of um, brand ethos, etc. And things like we wanted to be optimistic but not unrealistic and we wanted nice. to be knowledge but not knowledgeable but not sort of smug know-it-all um and one of the things we came up with was that we wanted to like maths but we didn't want to love maths and we explicitly um we explicitly talked about having favorite numbers and said actually we think as a as a sort of group, we almost want to not have favorite numbers because we want more than anything to be inclusive. And we want everyone to say, actually, maths is something that I can do with my child. And we think that potentially by having, you know, this is my favorite number, this is my favorite, uh, what have you, uh, specific bits about maths and being really sort of, I really, really love it. Potentially, there's a risk that could alienate some of the other families who we would love to be doing maths at home as well. Um, so we really want maths to be for everyone. And I hope it's not too controversial, therefore, if I say... Well, that's uh, the, it's been nice having you on the show anyway, Tom. We'll, <laughs> we'll end the interview there. Well, it's, it's a really interesting one, that. Um, we've, we've had quite a few people on the show who, who simply don't have a favourite number for whatever reason, but not... A la- I, I, well, I don't know if I like it, I, but I, I respect the decision to explicitly kind of not kind of push maths at, at people and saying you need to love it, you need to have this favourite number and so on. That, that's really interesting. And it'll be interesting as we go through the conversation to see some of your strategies for, for, for getting onto that. Okay, I like that. Controversial start, Tom. We're all up for that. Let's see where you go with this one then. Number two, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? So, so I think it links a little bit. I think um, for me, it was anything that was applied. So um, I went on and you know did some physics, taught physics, and, and really loved the, the maths being applied um, through physics. I also remember in um, in year two, so one of my sort of earliest experiences um, of of maths was being taken to the shop by my year two teacher and asked to have some coins and buy some things and get my change and count my change. And it was really the first realization that actually this maths I was learning at school was connected to that real world out there where I was going out and you know d- doing other things and buying things in shops, etc. And and that was a really sort of memorable moment for me. And I think that just connects to, to one of the things that I think is so great about maths is that, that link to the real world. Nice. Yeah, not quite as controversial. We'll take that. You're getting back on track <laughs> now, Tom. That's nice. And final one, uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Um, so I saw the question and I went immediately to the sort of footballer or sure. train driver type uh, original jobs. I think I think I settled on... A slightly more obscure one, which is um, I met someone the other day who's a full-time forager. Um, So basically posh restaurants pay him to go out and pick, well, um, 
wild spinach and I don't know wild garlic whatever else you can find um so he knows all the flowers and all the uh all the herbs and things that you can find in the hedgerows and spends his days pottering around um picking uh wild vegetables and then serving them up for top, top restaurants it just feels like a really nice um a nice job jeez that does feel good a, a for, professional forager yeah okay. I can't imagine there's that many of them or scope no. for that many of them in the UK but uh yeah, I've few... not seen any on Tez popping up anyway. Jeez, <laughs> flipping heck. Okay, superb. Right, well, um, you mentioned um, the your kind of charity organisation you're involved in. So take us through, Tom, where it all started for you um, in terms of your career and, and where you're up to now. Sure. So um, I guess I uh, I was at university and, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do as a career. Came from a family of teachers, so was firmly set on I wanted to do anything but teaching because that's what <laughs> everyone else had done. Um, then fell into teaching and absolutely loved it. Um, so teaching at a school in Leicester, um, serving a you know a, um, deprived catchment um, with all the wonderful and challenging things that that go with um, teaching in a you know fully comprehensive school. Um, I then became um through a sort of everyone else stepping back so it looked like I'd stepped forward um it became the head of physics at that school um and uh yeah really loved teaching a lot of GCSE A-level physics um I then did a master's in education and I started looking at the root cause of educational inequality something that I was finding really interesting within my own classes um, and then that took me down the route of parental engagement and the role of parents in, in children's learning. I then had a complete change and went out uh, to Germany and taught in a top international school, very posh, multimillionaire parents, etc. And there I also loved it, very different challenges. But I think I had this niggling interest from my masters and my work in the in the um, more disadvantaged schools playing on my mind and so then actually whilst I was out there my sister who's a primary school teacher started making some little maths videos with her kids at school to explain to parents in her class how maths topics were taught and I saw them and thought hey this sort of links to my masters and could be done so much better and there's a lot of primary schools trying to help parents in their own little ways and how can we how can we do this better so um that was my first sort of route into setting up the charity um we then originally um the organization i set up was called maths with parents we're now learning with parents and we won the teach first innovation award which was a big sort of game changer for us it allowed me to go full time um as a on it as a project and start trying to create a solution to support schools and that's fantastic well just before we, we we go any further i just wanted to mention you mentioned you did a master's there and it was quite kind of influential on the direction your career went since i hear really mixed things about masters i hear some people who kind of really enjoyed them like yourself and, and it was it led to something useful but i also hear um from teachers who were quite disappointed in it and it became almost kind of a bit of a tick box exercise just something you naturally had to do which would then hopefully help you to step up to be head of department and so on and so forth any um, any thoughts about what it was that that made you enjoy your master's so much or any kind of tips I guess uh, for want of a better phrase for anybody thinking of doing a master's I think for me it was really 
rooted in what I was doing at school already. So I already had projects around working with parents of the children in my class. And I was able to use those projects and take research skills that I learned from the masters and apply them to work that I was already doing. And I think teachers are so busy. Teaching is such a full-on profession. You don't have time to sculpt out this extra brand new project to to work on and because it was there it didn't feel extra to me at any point it was aligned to things that were going on in my day-to-day practice anyway it actually felt like it was giving me the tools that allowed me to do that same thing slightly better and I think that was really key for me because otherwise it becomes this extra duplication of work and as you say a tick boxing exercise that's great fantastic okay well before we dive into the kind of main thing we're going to talk about i always ask my guests at this stage for a favorite failure so something in your career professional life uh, former teaching life whatever you want that didn't go according to plan and crucially uh, that you learned from the experience um so i've listened to several of your other podcasts and i've heard this theme come up uh, several times but i think teaching teaching is really hard the beginning of your teaching career is full of failures so it's an obvious place to go to I think for me, it was teaching my key stage three classes. I I had, as I said before, mostly GCSE A-level physics. And then I had these two-year seven and eight classes for a period of two years. And I, I feel that key stage four and five, you've got that love of the subject. You've got the slightly more mature humor and what have you that you can go with, um, we do lots of work now with early years and primary and there's slightly different ways in. And I just found key stage three, I, I couldn't get that connection. I couldn't get over the, the behavior barriers. Um, and one of the, and the classes I had were challenging classes. I had a girl in my year eight class who'd never been to school before she joined my year eight class in September. And I think what I learned was that your classroom can't work as a silo in Mm. isolation. And perhaps in A-level physics, you can have your A-level physicists and just you and the content, and um, you can think slightly less about what's happening at at home. But actually, I needed to understand so much more about these kids and their backgrounds and where they were coming from and the connections between the different groups within the class and um, that sort of thing in order to get anywhere close to successfully teaching them all behavior management or etc and so i think i learned that your classroom can't operate as a silo but also i just learned how how amazing teachers are and how actually you have really different types of great teacher and one of the bits that i find most impressive is it's not just about delivering content teaching it's so much more about that package of emotional support uh, that goes alongside it and really understanding those students and I guess I try to remember that now that I'm external from the classroom, but still working with teachers is that those teachers are still handling all that, handling those crises that um, 12 year olds, but all age group really of kids have and managing those day to day alongside everything else. And feel free to kind of swerve this question if you think it'll come up later or or if you want to tackle it now. Um, It always fascinates me when I spoke to Dylan William on the show, the first time he was on, he spoke about how, even though he's obviously really into all cognitive science and all this, um, how relationships are are the key thing for for a teacher to develop, relationships with with students and so on. And just hearing you speaking there about how you weren't aware of what was going on in the individual lives of your students and so on, and how that plays such an important role in, in the in the dynamic in the classroom as a 
as an individual teacher who's perhaps not head of department, who perhaps doesn't go to all the pastoral meetings maybe and isn't aware of some of the kind of the, the home backgrounds or perhaps just hasn't taught, like, like you say, a new student joins the class and you don't know much about them and so on. How do you go about almost kind of fast tracking, getting that knowledge about what's going on in, in kids' home lives so you can then adapt in the classroom? Because that feels quite a difficult thing for, for an individual teacher, especially a novice teacher, to, to, to be able to do. It's really hard. We, just to give you one little exercise we used to do, um, we had something called High Five Hello. It's you know cheesy name, but basically the kids draw around their hand at the beginning of the year or whenever you want to do it. And then you ask some questions and they write... Um, different ones on each finger and so it might be what job do you want to be when you're older and so they write it down there and you can uh, mix up the questions and get whichever information you want from there but one of the the key things to then do is you will have kids in the class where you naturally build that relationship and you understand all about them and they Mm. tell you everything yeah but then a few weeks in you'll realize there's some kids in the class where to be honest, you're struggling to remember their name when you yes. when you look at them because yes. they're the quite overlooked ones. And that was where I found that high five hello activity really useful to be able to have that piece of paper. So, so I collected them all in and then had that piece of paper and I was able to go and see, actually, that's Tom and he wants to be a forager. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's a route into a conversation with all those kids that you didn't otherwise have that route in. And... Um, again, like all teachers, it's magpied from someone else and I can't claim to have made it up. But I found that a really useful exercise for just getting that first route into having those individual conversations with the children in your class, particularly the ones where it's harder to harder to think where you would start that conversation otherwise. That's superb. And especially with the time that this podcast comes out uh, towards the end of the academic year and perhaps new teachers come into the profession or teachers moving schools ready to to start in a new environment in September. That's certainly something that could be super useful. That's great, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Right. Well, let's move into kind of the main subject of today. Now, when we were swapping emails, kind of putting the the structure together, one of the things that you highlighted was this difference between, and I want to quote you, make sure I get this right, parental involvement in school versus parental engagement in learning um, so I think that seems like a decent place to, to start this conversation well what's the difference between the two Tom so perhaps first worth saying that you will find the terms parental involvement and parental engagement used interchangeably in the research in the way that schools and teachers use them and um, that's that's fine that is what it is but we are trying to separate out as you say parental involvement in schooling parental engagement in learning and perhaps before answering that question what's schooling and what's learning and how do they fit together so we have this idea of a a big circle of learning and you can learn in a child goes through their life and they're learning all the time whether they're someone's trying to educate them or not um the learning will happen happen in all sorts of different contexts within there you have their education and education is sort of could be seen as when someone is trying to help that child to learn. And that is a, a subsection of what they will learn. And then within, within education, a smaller subsection is schooling, which is when they're within the bricks and mortar of the walls of the school building. And we think that often schooling and education or schooling and learning get conflated to be the same thing. And we, we think about the Department for Education and we think of really... A department for schooling and yes. how they're how they're working with schools. Again, this is poached from a lady called Janet Goodall, who um who 
It's got lots of interesting research in this area. But if you if you see schooling and education as the same thing, then that leaves no room for the idea that a child might be learning anywhere outside of the bricks and mortar of the school building. So when it comes to this definition, parental involvement in schooling versus parental engagement in learning, we find a lot of schools focus effectively on parental involvement in schooling. So that is how can we get the parent to come into a parent's evening? How can we get them to join the PTA? How do we get them um, into a coffee morning or um, perhaps even answering one of our surveys? And the research suggests that's all good. And actually getting the parents involved in school life builds strong school communities and um, that sort of thing. It's a positive thing, but it's not an end outcome for a child. Now, parental engagement in learning that's quite different. It's what is happening between that parent and that child at home behind closed doors. Is that parent reading to their child? Are they having little conversations, interactions, games, um, etc., behind closed doors, wherever it is with their child? And that is what is linked with their child's future life chances. And if we imagine the scenario where you could only have one of them, if you had a parent who was coming along to every sports day but never read to their child at night, or you had a parent who would sit down and have all these wonderful conversations and play these games and discussions at home, but didn't come into the school building, actually the child is much better off if the only one you had was the parental engagement in learning. So that's the end result. We're not saying parental involvement in schooling isn't important. It is. But I think it should be seen as a stepping stone towards how we help parents to engage in their, their children's learning. That's fascinating, that, Tom. So um, a bit of background for listeners here. The first time I came, was aware of your work and was at the MA conference where you did a session, and I spoke about this with uh, with Joe Morgan. This was the bit of your session that really, really hooked me in right at the start when you listed all these things that schools do. And I was thinking of all the schools I've worked in and, and visited and so on. I'm thinking, yeah, I've seen that, the parents' evening, the big kind of emphasis on the percentage of parents who turn up to parents' evening and trying to drive that figure up each year, uh, inviting parents in and so on and so forth to, to, to see the school and, and what have you. And I'm thinking, yeah, that, that they, that they seem like the sensible things. They seem like the things that, that schools can, can control, again, for want of a better phrase. But then to kind of flip it on its head and say, well, actually the things that matter are the things that happen within the child's home. Again, it seems obvious, but you, you, you can see you can see why schools focus on the things that they feel that they can control, right? And and you're not saying that these are having no impact. It's just not as having as as big an impact or significant impact as, as the other things. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think it's shifting it from a school focus to a child focus. And yes. we often talk about this, but if you actually put the child at the centre, the child goes around their day-to-day life having let's say a teacher figure for simplicity and that teacher figure is hugely important if they have a really high quality teacher they'll go on to achieve great things but they have other key figures in their life and they often will have a parent figure and perhaps more than one and what have you lots of complexity of who that parent might be but they'll also have a parent figure that they really look up to and I had a little um example from a school we worked with who I think were in Rotherham and they said that they held a an event for year ones and it, year ones we're going to do some um sorry it wasn't year ones it was year, year threes or fours i think we're going to do some creative writing and so they turned up at school in the morning and they found the playground had like yellow and black tape 
and there was smoke coming out and a spaceship had crash landed in the playground. Right, and you nice. can imagine the scene and there was an egg and this egg was hatching and the <laughs> kids were so amazed and were coming up and were, you know, about to be taken by the teacher to go inside and do creative writing about who they thought this alien that nice. crashed in the playground was going to be. Like, wonderfully set up and credit to the school for doing it. This little kid turned to his dad and said, Dad, there's an alien in that egg. Like, this is so exciting. This is the most exciting day ever. And his dad turned to him and was like, well, it's not real, is it? Oh. And, and in that moment, like, just crushed it for that little kid. Yeah. It didn't really matter how well the school had set up their playground and their crash landing. If they'd had a conversation with the parents that said, look, we're going to do this. It's really important the parents, the children get into the idea and get really excited yes. about it then actually that child would have had a completely different experience. But without having, without seeing it from a child point of view and the fact that they look up to their teacher and they look up to their parent, it just all fell apart. And I thought that was really nice. Oh, yeah, crushing is the right word for that. And again, something that's, you can imagine this, you can understand the school kind of taking that for granted, right? Kind of and all the logistics of putting the day together, overlooking that kind of preempting it in, in, in the parents' minds, but that being such a pivotal part. And um, what, what I'd like to talk about, Tom, is I just want to go through um, a couple of the things that I've already kind of mentioned that, that I've seen schools do. And I wonder if you could, we could just dive a bit deeper onto them about some of the things schools could do to perhaps make them more effective. And I, I want to start with parents evening, just because as a secondary school teacher, that's one of the, one of the few times I can almost guarantee seeing a, you know, a certain, certain proportion of, of parents. And as I mentioned before, it's often quite, quite an important figure in SLT meetings, the proportion of parents who turn up to parents evening and so on and so forth. Um, is it, is there any way, are there any things schools can do to make parents' evening a bit more impactful on, on the home environment, if that makes sense? Or is it, is it down to individual teachers and the conversations they have? Um, it's a really good question. And I would start off with saying I think some schools do work with parents fantastically. We, we know of schools who... Um, know the parents from when they're pregnant because they know that actually in their communities they need to know them all the way through before they come yes. into school if they're going to have that impact like there are schools that do phenomenal wow. work in in this area um and i also think there are parents that get on perfectly well with the current system and that's absolutely fine i think before answering your question i would come to the thing that i hear so often every teacher say which is we get the parents that we don't need to see Yes. But we never get the parents that we most need to see. And that is, I think, should be a starting point for how we look at things like parents' evening. So parents' evening are really set up for, you know, a mum and dad of a kid that's doing really well. And that mum and dad are possibly um, white and middle class and confident to come into the school they had good experiences of school themselves they've got the social capital to speak to teachers because they're professionals themselves and they're able to have that sort of dialogue and parents evening are great for those parents but they probably fit in that category of parents that we don't really feel that we need to see so then there's the question of what about all the other parents and are we making sure that our parents evening is is inclusive and one of the things i would start with is the the power dynamic or the perceived power dynamic so as a, if you picture your parent who has been really anxious about coming into the school building because they hated going to school themselves, they found it really hard, but they really want the best for their child. So they're going to come and, and see their teacher. Actually, is that 
parent then getting sat down in a seat that's the size of a seven-year-old because (laughs) that's the ones that we have and you're sitting opposite the table against the teacher who's sitting in a full-size chair or whatever that's a bit of an extreme example but these sorts of things happen that bring back those memories of being a child and being in the position of um of not having any say secondly are parents evenings a balanced affair are we as a teacher saying actually this is your child and this is where I want them to be by the end of the year and this is what they're good at and this is what they're not good at are we ever getting the opportunity to stop and ask the parent any of that stuff and I I would tend to go with teachers are the expert in the curriculum and in the pedagogy but parents are probably the expert in the child they've known that child for 14 years whereas I've known them for eight weeks as their as their science teacher or whatever it is and so that um that power dynamic i think is is really interesting and i think there are opportunities to ask the parent like what are their hopes and and dreams for their child or even just to introduce themselves a really simple one um we found there was a survey that showed that parents um parents tend to be called mum or dad by the teachers and if you ask them what they'd like to be called they'd like to be called craig or tom wow and that's so obvious when you think yes. about it. They want yeah. to be seen as a human being. They don't want to be seen as just a parent. Um, but it links to this power dynamic. It links to this feeling yes. secretly, sort of subconsciously. Yes. Actually, your name doesn't really matter because your role here is just as the parent of this child. Um, whereas I'm definitely going to tell you my name because I'm a teacher and it's really important for you to know my name because you'll need to know that going forwards. And there's lots of these really subtle things that I think feed into it. This fascinatingness. Um, again, feel free to if we're going to cover this later, or if it's it's not something that that you um, necessarily have any tips or, or so about. But I'm wondering. I can see all these things are going to be great once the parents have kind of got through the door um, and got into parents' evening, and it feels a more inclusive environment and so on. But how do you get them there in the first place? Because I remember at my, the last school I worked full time at, we had loads of parents who just just simply didn't reply. And I know we're going to talk about kind of hard to reach families a little later, but whilst we're talking parents' evening, anything in particular there, Tom, that springs to mind to, to, to actually convince them that it is going to be a positive experience when they do turn up to parents' evening? Um, so first question would be, to revisit this do they need to become to parents evening is that the most important thing and we we have some nice examples of kids where we we can see that also parents where we can see they're reading with their child at home and they're playing those activities because yes. tech is allowing that window us that window to see that but they're not coming into the school and at the end of the day that's if if that's all we can get then that's okay yes. um the next thing is does it have to be the school building and yeah. there's this is resource intensive this and so you know um, take it with a pinch of salt but there are schools that do really great sessions in the local mosque or the local church or wherever those parents are to be found comfortably um, visiting parents houses again it gets it gets really yes. labor intensive but does it have to be the school building that they're they're coming into if crossing that threshold is such a barrier I think the next thing is thinking about why the parent is is coming in so I think as a teacher, sometimes we can think, well, we've asked with parents, so they should come in because mm. that's what we've asked of them. A parent doesn't need to do anything for you as a teacher. The person that they care about and that they have this unconditional love for is their child. And so actually, is the child the motivating factor? Is there a way of the parents' evening, like at the least having having the child? And we've 
you know, lots of schools do really nice things where the children report themselves on their progress in the different subjects yeah. and that sort of thing. And so the parents are coming along to hear their child speak. And uh, there's there's that. There's um, we had an example where we wanted it wasn't actually a parents' evening. It was a like maths workshop um, that would be done at the beginning of the year. And a school sent out letters themselves. And then we had postcards that we got the children to write to their parents, inviting them along to nice. the same session. And as you can imagine, the children postcards had about three times the uptake that yes. the school invites did because they've handwritten this thing saying, mummy, please come along. And the parent wants the best for their child. And so that gets them there. Um, so I think there are quick wins, but I think a lot of it is big changes that take a while in the culture, etc. And when you're looking at experimenting and trying different things, you might want to look at your reception class or your year seven class or whoever the new ones are because by the time they've come to 12 parents evening their sort of expectation might well be fairly set on what they're thinking it's going to be and if they're not coming in that might be quite hard to break that's fascinating tom um just just two other kind of things that i've experienced schools doing that i wouldn't mind getting your your take on in a similar way so so the first is a bane of my life and that's open evenings and i'm speaking here as a secondary school teacher so when we're trying to recruit um year current year sixes going into year sevens to, to come to the school um and i call this open evening inflation it got ridiculous like one school in bolton all of a sudden they'd have some neon lights outside so then every school in Bolton had to have neon lights and fireworks were going off and all sorts um but that is often a time where you do get parents in for the first time. It's sometimes it's their first, particularly if they don't have any um, older children. It's their first view, first experience of, of being in a secondary school, your first time talking to them, and so on. That feels to me like quite a good opportunity to to kind of set the tone for how for the relationship the school's going to have with with parents. Or again, is 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 that something that we shouldn't be perhaps focusing on as as much as schools do? Do you think? I. I feel here that I don't have as much to input, if I'm honest. We we really focus on that engagement in the learning, as, a, as yes. I've talked about. And I would put um, uh, parents' evenings can sort of support that. Opening evenings slightly less so. They're more about hitting your, your numbers of children <laughs> yeah. that are applying and um, that sort of thing. I, I also found them hard as a, t- as a teacher and... I don't know. I don't know how you get the the parents you most want through and and what you do. I guess my one general message would be continuing to think about that power imbalance and yes. is it just about the teacher presenting their sel- themselves or is it about the parents having the opportunity to talk about the child? That makes perfect sense. And um, my, my final one, Tom, is it's kind of a bit of a, a blend of that because what we started experimenting with during open evening is we do some taster sessions. So we'd, we'd kind of put on what a maths lesson might be like and the parents will be there and the child will be there. We did that in open evenings, but I've also worked uh, with schools who do that as kind of a bit of a separate standalone event. So it's not an open evening. It's just maybe year 10 parents will come in to, to see what a GCSE science lesson looks like and so on and so forth. Again, is, is that something that's got potential do you think to engage parents in with the learning or is again is this another area where perhaps the emphasis could be placed elsewhere so if it's okay i'll come back to again where i'm slightly more comfortable which is the primary setting yeah of course every when i first started math for parents i spoke to lots of head teachers about 30 heads and said what do you do around parental engagement in maths and the answer i got back every time was 
oh, we hold a maths workshop. Yeah. And they hold a phonics workshop and they hold a maths workshop, which tended to be um, fairly typical. And so I said, can I come along to these maths workshops? And I came along to about half a dozen of them. And in reality, what they looked like, they were tend to be held after the immediate rush in September, so late September, October sort of time. Yeah. Um, and the idea was to help the parents know about the full curriculum that was going to be taught throughout the year. And they looked like, and some of this stuff is echoing what I've said before, the parents would come in, they would be sat in, in rows yep. in the classroom, in yep. the baby seats. The teacher would go up and have been a teacher, I could sort of sense that the teacher had been thrown a PowerPoint from last year where yeah. it was like, this is the <laughs> yeah. opening yeah. thing. No one had looked at it for about 20 years, but last year was the last <laughs> time it was opened. And they were ta- asked to talk through the entire maths curriculum in about 45 minutes. Yeah. And so the parents would sit down Obviously, all that sort of fear of school coming rushing back to them, they would never get the opportunity really to speak. And they would sit and listen to this really quite dull presentation, (laughs) unlike the open evening where everything was, you know, um, science experiments with elephants, toothpaste and what have you. This was (laughs) this was. Okay, we're going to first teach them place value. This is what place value is. You could have counters. We use counters. These are the counters and Dean's blocks. And then we're going to move on to number bonds. And this is what a number bond is. And this is yes. what lung multiplication is. And don't forget that you must never teach them this way. And it has to be this way. And, <laughs> and then you look at these poor shell shocked parents 30, 45 minutes later, and they're coming out being like, I'm meant to. <laughs> I'm meant to do all that with my child at home. Like, I've not understood any of it. It's meant to be for seven year olds. Like, how stupid am I? And I think that was my, my starting point was surely we can do a bit better than this as yes. a as a profession. And the challenge I went back to the teachers and the head teachers with was like, maybe those parents might be able to then support their child with some of that tonight or next week. Do you really think by February half term that they're remembering how you told them that the grid method was used in multiplication? So now they're going to be using that. Like, is is there really a lasting effect to it? And that was the challenge that um that we sort of, I guess, set out to solve a little bit. That's fantastic. Right. Well, let, let's turn our attention now to some of the things that, that you feel schools can do that's going to have much more of an impact than Tom. So so what, what are some of those things? Um, so, again, lots of it will be echoing things we've said there, but I think focusing on that engagement in the child's learning is the key. So what are the interactions parents and um, children are having at, at home behind closed doors? I think... Tech is allowing us for the first time to start to measure some of this stuff, to start to actually get ideas of how parents are are engaging with their child in a way that used to always just be a black box. You sent it home and you had no idea what happens at home. So we've got we've got a way in. Um, I think there's um, again apologies for like the slight focus on on primary and uh, different subjects, but I think there's quite an acceptance that in the early years and throughout primary, reading with your child is really important and is really encouraged. Um, And I would say we can do more than just reading and we can celebrate all engagement that's that's going on at at home behind closed doors, Um, be that in maths activities, be that in um, other areas of English or other subjects as well, arts and crafts, etc. And then this brings me on to homework and homework's a really interesting one you may have seen the EF reports that suggest there's some evidence that homework has an impact at secondary at primary there's really a lot less evidence that it's it's worthwhile at all um I think if you're setting a 
let's let's say you've got a fractions worksheet and you're sending that home to your year twos, then are you actually expecting that year two to sit down on their own and do it? Well, probably not because they're six. You're probably expecting that the parents are going to do it with them. And so if we're sending home homework tasks that we know that the parents are going to have to get involved with, but in no way tailored to the parent, then isn't there a disconnect there? Isn't there something wrong? Might that be why primary school homework doesn't really have an impact? Because the children aren't independent learners in the same way that we hope they would be at secondary and able to get on with these tasks. And yet in no way are we supporting the parents to to know how to get involved. Um, And so it's a bit more radical, but I think one of our proposals would be, actually, maybe we scrap homework at early years, at key stage one, but we don't say we're going to scrap it like some schools have, and that's the end of it. We say, and in that time, there's this huge opportunity to encourage parental engagement activities, to encourage these um, interactions that have such a huge impact on the child's future life chances. So can we replace homework with activities really designed around that parent and that child interacting together? And I think particularly in early years, key stage one, and to some extent throughout key stage two, and it, it does feed into secondary as well, um, can we can we look at that homework activities in terms of the parent and the role that the parents can have. Um, to give you a an example from right up at the other end, um, key stage five. So when I have my A-level physics class, you obviously start to get the issue that parents are really going to struggle to understand the concepts. And we often say parents don't need to be experts in maths in order to be able to help. But there is a degree to which it gets hard when it becomes yeah. um, A-level physics. But <coughs> one of the things um, that I ran uh, through my master's was just a little program where basically in, in exam prep um, in the summer, we gave the parents the um, mark schemes for all of the past papers. Uh-huh. And so the and they had the timetable. So the parents and the kid came in together. And as a three, we set up a timetable of what it's the past papers the child was going to do when. And then the parent was able to hold the um, mark scheme so the child completed it they showed the parent they sort of talked through what they found easy and hard then the parent handed over the mark scheme and then they came back and the parent had a little form where they wrote in how well the child had done on that one etc and they were really involved the whole way through that exam prep um and the completion of the past papers even though they didn't understand the the concepts at all um so i guess throwing that in just to show that i think that this stuff can work not just with five and six year olds but also all the way up um, in different ways this is fascinating this time I've, I've i've made three three frantic notes whilst you were, you were talking there of things i wanted to wanted to come back to i'll do the most recent one first i know we're going to talk about barriers uh, a little later but it just strikes me that this this feels to me the, the biggest one i certainly hear from kind of parents of key stage three key stage four students i think once you get to key stage five you'd hope if they've as i say chosen your subject Maybe they've got that independence, a bit more motivation and so on. Not always the case, but but maybe. But certainly key stage four, say foundation GCSE, your yeah. stereotypical demotivated year 10. Now, what the story I often get there is they'll 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 take some homework home and they'll 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 come back and they haven't done it. And when I speak to the parent, the parent will say, Well, they they didn't know how to do it, and I didn't know how to do it either. So what, what are we supposed to do? And it's this, it feels to me a big barrier. The older the child gets, the, the less able the parent is to, to have that understanding of, of the whole, it's essentially GCSE curriculum covering, covering every subject. 
it sounds like an impossible question, but what do you do in that in that that case, Tom? Because you've got parents who want to get involved, but just simply simply can't actually engage with the subject content because they don't have that specialist knowledge them, themselves. It's hard, and I think we we started. I guess to some extent there's a reason that I was a secondary school teacher. I'm now doing this work mostly in primary. And one of the things was those parents who are struggling to engage in year 10, they're actually also not playing I spy with their child in many cases when they're four. Yes. <laughs> like maybe yes. we start there and maybe we solve the problems when they're, they're three and four and then we build it up and we, and we get to those solutions and we get parents used to being involved in the learning and used to learn things alongside. Um, the, the, Approach we take, so if I talk about upper key stage two, so you're getting on to, you know, long division, some yeah, some yeah. tricky maths concepts there, begins of algebra, um, is actually, if you've got a parent that's got a maths level of a 10-year-old, you're going to really struggle to ever motivate them to learn 11-year-old maths, apart from when they've got an 11-year-old child. That feels like yes. the best opportunity we have as a society to upskill that adult in maths is when they've got a child there. So can we create a culture where they're confident to learn alongside their child and be supported? And so the approach that I guess we've taken through Maths for Parents is to try and create little, short, really non-threatening videos where you have, in our instance, two children talking through what long division means how it's done why it's important etc showing some of the language it's used at school and the and the methods and the parent and the child watch that video together so it's it's sold in a way of don't worry we can't expect you to know this because we're using all different techniques and stuff that you wouldn't know um if you weren't a teacher um but Actually, perhaps the parent and child can upskill. Perhaps the child has done that topic recently, so may be able to help nudge it along the way. And then based on that video, giving some little activities that feed off that, um, off that video and that the parent and child can do together. Another thing, which I don't know how controversial it is, but <laughs> all, <laughs> all of our parent activities avoid right-wrong answers. So... They're all open-ended exploratory uh, activities. So instead of saying, what's a quarter of 12? We'll say, get a pile of pasta and get your four favorite teddy bears and have a little teddy bears picnic and explore how much of the pasta and how many of the grapes that each teddy bear gets. And that allows that parent to effectively still engage in the same task in the same math still have that sort of richness of experience and looking at the underlying concepts but without getting hung up on this right answer and wanting to to type it in somewhere because they're not sure if they're right and so they they don't engage at all and how suitable that is to key stage four I, i'm not sure and i haven't tested it but i wonder if there are some underlying principles or uh, core themes that at least the, the parents and kids could explore together at home which avoid the the need for the right wrong answer so explicitly that's brilliant that's brilliant um me two other notes so the first one was you mentioned that with tech we've got a much better idea of essentially what's going on in home in terms of the the engagement what, what, what do you mean by that tom what, what, what are we talking there um so i guess again if you if you let me up to talk through our platform but there yeah, are other course. platforms that do a similar thing um we uh like i say we the teacher 
selects the topic. So they say we've done our halves and quarters recently. And then the parents get sent the little video to watch together with their child of the two young kids or a parent and child, um, and then the activities to do. This is coming through. So it's all des- designed for the parents facing the biggest barriers, the, the most disadvantaged parents. And so it's coming through mostly on their phones because that's what most parents have. Um, and the website is able to tell which parents have clicked on the video to watch it, which ones have clicked on the activities. Um, the parents and children leave comments. So last year we had about 300,000 comments left by the parents wow. and children about the activities they played. They uploaded about 30,000 photos. So you've then got this wealth of information that can go back to a class teacher and can say, actually, this child has had a go at that fractions activity, but the parent has left a comment being like, they didn't understand the difference between thirds and quarters or whatever it was. And you're starting to get a sense of this is how how parents are are engaging at home and that just window into the home whereas it used to i think be such a black box when you when you sent home your worksheet pieces of paper and they get written on or not written on and then sent back to you 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 have no real idea why that is or or what's happened to it where it's got lost along the line whereas once you're using tech and these platforms you're able to see actually this parent's never logged in or this parent keeps logging in keeps watching videos keeps doing it but then leaving comments being like we can't get it we don't understand it and that gives you such a wealth of information to be able to then build your relationships. You said so much of this is about relationships. Build your relationships and um, tailor things from that point. This is fascinating. But the problem is every time you speak, Tom, I get another about 20 questions I want to <laughs> ask you here. So let me let me hone in on this one before I forget this one. Um, you, just to clarify, your platform, what, what age group does it go up to, Tom, in terms of uh, this, this facility that it has? So it's, it's currently 4 to 11. Um, perhaps the best way to explain it is instead of um, what we really care about is building those interactions, those conversations. Um, that's what matters. And that's where the gap between your richest kids and your poorest kids derives from is the differences about what happens at home. That's actually much bigger, has a much bigger role in the gap than the differences of what those children experience whilst they're at school. And so we think if we can help all families to have those um, little interactions, play those little games, have those conversations, then we have a really good opportunity to to narrow the education gap. And that, um, so so what we're effectively doing is um, when parents have a reading log, like a physical book that goes backwards and forwards where they document their reading, instead of that, they're able to come on the app and they're able to say what reading they've done with their child that night. And there can therefore be nudges and reward schemes that link to that. But also the parents can get videos about how to read effectively with their child. So they're doing that every day, that little reading interaction. But then every week um, they're getting a maths, a maths game or an English game um, as well related to what's being taught at school. And our model is that that will actually be able to completely replace the homework that would be being set out uh, sent out by the primary school, particularly in those younger ages. I see. So if we now, and I know kind of primary is, is your key area of, of specialism here, but I'm, I'm fascinated whether your instincts suggest that this could go right. If you had the, the time, money and resources, do you think this could go right up to age 16 using the similar model? Or do you think there's something inherently different about secondary where the, the subject matter gets more specialised, more difficult, that we need some kind of different support, if that makes sense. I think there's a, there is, there are fundamental differences. I think perhaps less about the 
curriculum, more about the the child and that parent-child relationship and dynamic. Uh, um, your child is gaining these independent learning skills and this independence and slightly less wants to sit down, have a teddy bear picnic yeah. with their mum than they do yeah. them when they're four. Um, so I, I think that's that's really key. I don't think it's overcomeable. I think the the harder content or the mess, more specialized content is a, is another factor. Again, I don't think totally overcomeable. Um, I think my main challenge to the sector would be we we think for a long time education has focused purely on schooling, purely on what's happened in school. And we've said parents are just too hard and we just can't quite fix it. Yeah, and yeah. we can do stuff where we try and get them into school to make them, you know, uh, understand what we're doing. But we don't really think we can influence what they're doing at home. And we're saying, actually, that's really, that's really able to change now. Like we've got tech, we've got solutions that work at primary to really make a difference and really make a difference on the attainment gap as a result of that. Is there a way that through focusing and putting our heads together, we can come up with something at, at secondary? And I think if nothing else, shining a light on that as a problem and us all thinking about it and thinking about our approaches as, as teachers in our working relationships with parents will be useful and will really help in that attainment gap. But I'm not saying we have the, we think that our model can be rolled right up to 16 straight away or without some, some significant sort of changes. I see. And um, it's interesting because you, you mentioned kind of upper primary. Well, if you look at year five or year six schemes of work in primary school on the national curriculum, certainly in terms of maths, it's very similar to what the kids will do in year seven and eight. So it feels yeah. to me straight away that the key stage, if, if year five and six can be conquered, year seven and eight should be able to be as well. I wonder then, and this is the final question about what you, you said last, I'm fascinated by these ideas of these activities, particularly for, from a maths perspective. Would you be able to just give us a couple more examples, kind of dotted around different year groups if, if you prefer, but particularly I'm interested in kind of year five and year six. What would be some of the things that you would want parents to be engaging with, with their students to, to really make a difference? And apologies for putting you on the spot with this one. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I think there's... Uh, I, I realise I'm, I'm heading to, to the English, but if you go to no, okay. English, there's, there's things about like debating um, and there's that oracy, that conversation. And sometimes you think of games like um, Would You Rather, like Would You Rather Be a whatever oh, human nice. with a body of a horse or a <laughs> horse with a body of a human or whatever it is. Um, those sorts of things. Like you think of those games, you sort of think of them as almost like owned by middle-class families on trains, like trying to fill yes. up their time. And like, actually those games are so rich in learning and so rich in conversation. How, how can we support everyone to have, have those sorts of uh, conversations? So things that linked it, like debating and, um, and building an argument, etc. I, I think there's so much that could be done so nicely on, on the English side. Um, the, the next example that came to my mind, again, it's like dodging your question. So probably a younger maths example is playing shop um so setting up a shop and um charging items and counting change etc um one of the comments we had from a parent was um that they'd set he'd set his sort of um his two kids off playing shop and initially he'd been involved but basically they found it so fun that they just carried on playing shop all evening nice. and like this is just maths becoming integrated into their home life and they're counting out the change and stuff. And that just feels so great. Um, as we get older, 
I feel like I um it, it gets it gets harder, but I still think there are there are real opportunities. Um I'm floundering a little bit. The to to tell you about one of the partnerships we have, we have a partnership with Enrich, and I'm sure you know Enrich and their their activities. Um one of the issues as a parent, if you go along to Enrich, is that it's really hard to identify what are the right activities for my yeah. child. And actually, I've got a bit of an issue with all resource banks. Like anywhere we say, hey, here's loads of places where you can go and like there's loads of great resources there. We know that the engaged parents who are looking for stuff might be able to go through and find stuff. But again, those parents that we don't feel like we're normally getting to are not going to get through that. Whereas through our partnership with Enrich, we're able to say, okay, there's your child's doing about algebra. Um, here's the video about algebra and then here's an enrich activity that links to that thing your child's learning about right now and takes away all of that work for the parent to try and narrow it down um so we have some really nice links to enrich um we have activities around um shape and reflection and those sort of um other softer things if i'm thinking about the more like perceived to be a drier calculation type topic so there's a topic there's a four digit subtraction exercise where you have um you might remember it better than me but you start with certain numbers and then you subtract the number that where the orders have been oh yes. digits have been inverted yeah, yeah. and then yeah, you keep nice. doing it and you always end up at the same number or yeah. something like that that sort of magic trick like feels like a great opportunity for parents and children to be to be exploring and trying to understand why that is. Um, we were talking recently about perimeters and um, can you draw different rectangles with different perimeters and how do you get to a perimeter that's an odd number? And are you always going to get even numbers? And it's rather, again, rather than saying, here's a rectangle, what's its perimeter, which might be the normal way you go about it. And I talk about worksheets, but also I think lots of these websites are effectively worksheets hidden behind popping balloons and, yeah, uh, yeah, and things. Yeah, it's yeah. effectively still saying what's the perimeter of this rectangle. Rather than that, can we get the parents to be exploring with their child where the child can draw some different rectangles and they can um, look at the perimeters of all of them and realize they're all even and then think about how they might have an odd one or understand, you know, what do they spot, that sort of exercise. So much of the same exploratory work that I think you would do in a classroom, just trying to do with, with parents and taking away that, that right answer element. That's great. Fantastic, Tom. Well, again, something we alluded to earlier on was was these um, harder to reach families. And I wonder if we could just kind of uh, zoom back on that. Um, again, just any any I don't know, tips or thoughts or experiences that you've had with, with the families who just, or the parents who, for whatever reason, simply, simply don't engage at all? Yeah, I think the first um, issue that we would have is with the phrase hard to reach. And I think, again, it's school centric. So the yes. school is trying to reach them and they're, yes, they're struggling too. Yes. And we think of like no parent walks around their life thinking of themselves as hard to reach. Yes. They, they have people that they talk to. They will go and talk about their child's education and their child's schooling to someone. It might yeah. not be you and it might not be me as people in perceived positions of perceived authority or as a class teacher or whatever it is. And you might not be able to break that down or that might be really challenging, but there will be someone that they speak to. And so we're doing lots of work with um, sort of intermediaries. If they are speaking to their local imam, actually, can we speak to the local imam as well and understand their views and their, their thoughts about it? Um, so 
I think that's that's one view on on hard to reach is is maybe the term's not not particularly helpful. Um, continuing on, I think it's about um, looking at motivation and their reasons for for wanting to support their child's um, learning. Again, it comes back to being child centric. We know um, another example was a survey that was done by a school we work with where they sent it out um, as a school survey and then they sent it out as a child interviewing their parents exercise with the exact same questions and it went from 7% uptake to 70% uptake when wow. it became child interviewing. Now that still leaves your 30% to maybe the ones that we're, we're most talking about but I do think there's there's you know by putting the child at the center we can really um, start to move forward. Um, other things we've already talked about so power dynamic I think is is what's making them um, perhaps further from school. Just another little tidbit again from Janet Goodall her research found that the families that we as schools think of hard as hard to reach are the same families that say they find school hard to reach. Yes. So I think it's just worth reflecting again on, on our practice around that. Really interesting. Um, something else you mentioned in the session that I was lucky enough to attend was that, well, we're going to, in a, in a moment, start talking about some of the barriers that, that parents have uh, in particular. But one of the things you mentioned was that a lot of the research had been conducted, obviously, pre-pandemic. Um, I wonder if you've got any insight or just a kind of a gut feeling about whether the pandemic has, has changed the dynamic between either schools and parents or parents and their child in terms of learning at all yeah 100 percent. so i think for many um many parents the pandemic was a time where they engaged in their child's learning in ways they never had before and in some parents like in some cases sort of for the first time or in yep. their child's um education definitely for the first time and so there's a great opportunity there that we can build on um i think another thing was that we'd been sort of saying for the last five years, hey, look, parents are really important. And schools have been like, yeah, yeah, we've got these other priorities. Um, <laughs> and suddenly we're hearing that schools, you know, we're, we're now speaking to the parent liaison officer or whatever at the school, a new title only invented in yes. January. And those titles <laughs> used to be there a few years ago when there was more funding for it, et cetera, but actually had really been cut by schools in most instances. And then they're like, you know what, we can't do anything with the kids if we've not got the families and the communities on board. And so suddenly we're seeing really positive signs coming out of schools about really wanting to tackle this issue, really taking it more seriously. Um, the other, in the other uh, example is at sort of an organizational and, and DFE level where we're speaking to a lot of organizations who are starting to say, like, we realize that whereas in the past, parents were just a stakeholder for us that were in some way important, like, actually, they are really core. And that how do we how do we get the parents that we wouldn't otherwise um, reach to engage it used to be a question we hear from schools, we're now hearing it from organizations as well. Um, so I think that's a real positive organizations like BBC Bite Size, like really tearing themselves apart being like, at the moment, this is a resource bank used mostly by those middle class families. What can yes. we do to to make it more um, equitable? And I think that's a really positive sign as well. 
That's it's interesting again, just to get a, a positive take from from the pandemic. Again, that that was my instinct that perhaps parents have become more more engaged. But it's really interesting to hear that organisations are, are acknowledging this and, and putting this as a priority. I, just as I, a bit would... of a tangent on that, before we talk about barriers, I, I'm I'm fascinated by um, kind of resource banks, mainly from a teacher perspective, but also just kind of generally and so on. And um, well, what advice do you give to someone like BBC Bite Size who are who are looking who've got these you know free you know state paid uh, resources out there but but want to make them more more inclusive if that's the right phrase what do you say to organizations like that so i think we'd break it into three steps although i'll probably come up with a fourth whilst i'm speaking <laughs> um the, the first is how you nudge families to come on to to the platform or how you how you nudge them to be involved and so um this is some work we've done with the University of Chicago looking at behaviour change and how you make sure that um, parents don't just interact once with their child, but this becomes a habit that they um, do sustained over a period of years. And I think for um, I think for someone like BBC Bite Size, you, you can't just be a passive resource sitting there. You've got to think about that motivation. How are you encouraging the parents on? How are you encouraging the right parents and making sure you're you're getting through to the right parents. In our case, or our sort of solution is to use schools as a partner and use the homework as a as a way to create that nudge. Um, but I think there there could be other ways. Um, we know that um, some of the work the Tiny Happy People are doing, which is a BBC project um, looking at engaging um, disadvantaged families, is really um, making waves just by targeting the right sort of community. So working in um, some of the poorest uh, wards in the country and looking at their advertising and how they're sending stuff out through health visitors and, and various other imaginative uh. routes. So nudge would be, or motivate would be the first step. The second step I think is when they're there, what are the resources that they're accessing? And that's, so I talked about the, um, the teddy bear picnic before you've got parents who are, coming along and they're getting their bits of pasta and their grapes and they're sharing them between their favorite teddy bears but if you've just been to the food bank and i, I think i said this to you before are you going to want to take all your bits of pasta and your grape and put them on the floor and not be able to eat them anymore also there are cultures in which handling your food and not eating it is really frowned upon so maybe we shouldn't be using food and maybe we should be offering like pebbles from your garden as an alternative but then are we assuming you've got a garden and you're not in a yes. fourth floor flat where actually you haven't got that access to things outside? And so it's not saying that those things are easy, but it's just going through that process and thinking how accessible is this. One particular BBC Bite Size activity comes to mind is about cooking and it's a, it's a key stage one cooking activity. Um, and it's just about mixing and exploring mixing different things. And the activity is to make mango frozen yogurt and basically get your little pieces of mango out and like who's got little cubes of mango yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, it's about yeah. as middle class as it could possibly be and <laughs> yeah. it's a really nice activity i think they're trying to avoid using cookers and other things that are dangerous and still make something yummy like yeah great but saying use your mango and if not use your blueberries or your raspberries yes. it's, it's probably excluding quite a few people that are really they're wanting to engage so that'd be the second thing was like the content when they're there and then the last thing would be what is the monitoring that you're able to do of this. So if they're, again, in our platform, they're logging in, we're able to see, like, we report to each school every term, 
this is your engagement from pupil premium students. This is your engagement from non-pupil premium. Like they're seeing child by child, but they're also seeing that sort of summary data. So they're saying, actually, we're not getting through to these families or we are, or we're um, whatever else it is. Um, I think if you're not able to do that monitoring, then you're never going to iterate and learn. Yes. I, I said we have 300,000 comments. Lots of those comments were, well, this is rubbish because it needed a printer and I don't have a printer. And yes, like yes. only by getting that feedback are you able to say, actually, we need to not have printers in any of our activities and we need, we need to change it up. And so um, I think that would be my, my other sort of suggestion is, are you doing it? And it can be done through logins. It can be done through hidden logins and links and emails and stuff. But there's also ways you can do it just by understanding where that person's logging in from and um what catchments are they and how are we getting our disadvantaged catchments versus some more affluent catchments and whatever but i think that monitoring and learning um is really key if you're going to keep it keep it accessible fascinating fascinating well i, I want to talk barriers now tom and if it's okay um with you i want to start with one that you've, you've already just mentioned there i mean just a bit of background when i was uh, listening to your session again this was another bit it was i'll just i'll be open and honesty i was i was absolutely knackered and i'm listening to your session i had to go and pick up my little boy from from nursery and i was kind of hoping it'd be a bit boring so i could just kind of zone out pick up on a couple of bullet points to talk with joe and then move on but it was just kind of a bit of gold dust after gold dust and this bit about barriers really 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 kind of uh, hit home for me and in particular what you've just mentioned there about the um the the food so um i'm i'm really bad when it comes to manipulatives and stuff i'm, I'm i need to upskill and get better and i know that at primary school primary school teachers are experts at teaching with with manipulatives cubes and so on and when i speak to early years practitioners like helen williams and she describes lessons her math lessons they're involving butter beans and cubes and all, all the counters and all this kind of stuff but i never is how stupid am i i never thought that but I thought the barrier was getting parents to engage with those materials and upskilling them so that they're at a point where they can do calculations with them with the child in the way that it's done at school. And I'm sure that is a barrier, but I never even considered that the barrier itself was was having access to such basic things as as beans, as frozen peas and, and so on and so forth. So whenever you said that, I thought, wow, OK, I, I really need to kind of strip this back and, and, and really start with basics. So I wonder if we can start with with that barrier just and whether we call it access to materials or equipment or whatever it feels to me that's significant and, and how, how do we overcome it is it as simple as just avoiding like you've already mentioned just avoiding activities that require things that are hard to get for some families i think it's being conscious of it is actually the first thing that i would say um we really want kids to be using manipulatives and hands-on activities and so we're creating that teddy bear picnic so that they get hands-on and so that yeah, they're not just yeah. writing down the answer so it'd be really sad i think if the outcome of that conversation was that everyone thinks well we'll scrap it and we'll just yes. get them to talk to each other because there's no no option but i think there is a route of offering different alternatives and you've got your outside using sticks and leaves and things that people can find for free off the ground you've got your if you happen to have um some butter beans in your kitchen then can you use your butter beans and then you've got your sort of um uh well i'll come on to, to paper but you you've got other solutions as well and and just provide providing the alternatives i, I think goes a decent way um to doing that paper and printing i think is really interesting so mm -hmm. a printer like firstly a laptop is quite a um 
an unusual device to have in many of the households, and we know there's been a lot of focus on it over the last um, however however many months, but mobiles are much more pervasive, and the vast, vast majority of parent-aged adults have access to mobile with internet, so probably making things mobile-friendly. Um, then secondly, like printers, so not many families will have a printer at home. If you've got a um, you know professional job where you're going in and able to print stuff off at work that's probably excluding quite a few families and so um that's easily solved because actually you can print off 30 of the sheets and send them home and we sort of encourage teachers to do that sometimes you've got a, a board game or something and you really want them to have that particular yes. board um and even the pen and paper we we're having this conversation yesterday there are an awful lot of families where they won't have a pen and paper just lying around. They might have an envelope and be able to find some sort of pencil, but like that itself can be a barrier. And I think we decide in our activities that actually we, we don't think that we can get through without a pen and, pen and paper um, as a way of tallying things down or doing some drawings yeah. or whatever. It feels like it isn't essential. And so we're sort of saying, actually, you need a pen and paper to be able to engage with this. But perhaps we can present that up front and the teacher knows that everyone needs to have a pen and paper. Yes. And if they think there's kids, because as a teacher, you sort of know the families where that might be a barrier. And so perhaps you send that pen and paper home with them. So I think it's um, I think it's the main thing I would say is being cognizant of it. Um, once you're aware, then you can start to put in options. And also schools do great things where they pack up a little bit of Numicon into a little Ziploc bag and send it home with one kid because they think they think that that kid's, you know, would really benefit from it. And, and great. Like there are other ways around it other than um, assuming that just as long as we're being conscious of it, then you can start to come up with other solutions as well. It's fascinating again, and I think to get a positive spin from the pandemic, this is something that schools have been forced to become more aware of, mm. isn't it? Like it, it seems pretty obvious to be aware that a lot of families won't have access to laptops or will be sure sharing a laptop. So schools were on to that reasonably quickly, but then it's yeah, it's it's not having access to squared paper or an exercise book or a ruler or a compass and and all these things that when you start thinking about exactly what kids do need particularly for maths to to engage properly the the, the list gets pretty long um i wonder tom can you take us through some of those other barriers because i just found this absolutely absolutely fascinating when you were kind of listing them off can you talk us through some of the things that parents find yeah get in the way of them engaging in uh, their child's learning sure i think um one of the ones i would go to first because teachers tend to underrate it when we do service of teachers versus how how parents rate it is that their child doesn't enjoy what gets sent home. And mm. actually, that might not seem like a barrier, but if you're there with your child sitting down and it's causing you to have arguments and you know it's making you find that right answer and neither of you can find it and it gets really tense and you're worried about getting detention tomorrow because you haven't done this thing, yes. actually that really puts you off. And so having it as a real fun, um, a fun activity, a fun, enjoyable experience from end to end at home um, I would say was one of the one of the top sort of um, barriers that parents say that teachers don't necessarily think about. Um, others just to reel them off. So we know that um, not valuing education and every parent wants the best for their child. Every parent has you know love and hopes and dreams for their child. They also interestingly have the same desire to do things like read with their child and go to the museums with their child, etc. And yet some parents struggle to convert those good intentions into daily habits and routines. Mm. So 
I've sort of mixed two points there, but like they, they've got that love for their child and that's not a, an issue. But what can be is, is value in education. If they've had a really negative experience themselves or they've sort of got this view of, well, it never did anything for me and I never used my maths, then that can be a barrier. And, you know, maybe they're handing it over to school to, to try and solve that problem and uh, leaving it there. Um, English as additional language, um, not so much a barrier between the parent and the child because parent and child will have a shared language. Um, but between the parent and the school, that's, that's mm-hmm. a real barrier. Um, knowing what their child is, is learning at any one moment. Um, so you want to get involved, but you don't know if it's four-digit numbers or three-digit numbers or actually it's telling the time. Like, how, how are you meant to know that? And yes, you had an information evening back in September where they told you, but you've sort of lost track. Um, and just on just on that one, Tom, again, I find this from, from a secondary perspective, there's kind of an additional twist to that because often schools will publish, let's say, the maths curriculum um, on their website or whatever. So in theory, an engaged parent could go on and see what their child's studying in year nine. But the problem is it's often in language that even teachers sometimes don't have a clue what's going on with it. Like it'll say, it'll say ratio, but that could mean a whole number of things, or it'll say, you know, solving equations. But again, that could mean a whole number of things. So if you've got a parent who's really keen and yet the the barrier is not actually understanding what topic it is just from some abstract name, and then they end up kind of Googling it and they get like a million hits back. You don't know where to start. That That's problematic as well, isn't it? For sure. And, and I think added to that are, the new techniques like it's not just the word ratio it's also the fact that they don't um, like they never learned to use part whole models to yes. divide and now everyone's using part whole models or wh- yeah, whatever yeah. it is like those are added i would i tend to say that i think schools are more aware about issues like the new technique and parents knowing what their child are particularly post-covid um yeah than they are about some of the other ones, such as the child not enjoying it or, or what have you, which is why I've sort of left them a little bit later. But um, I think they are valid barriers. And I think we can't expect parents to know what a number bond is if you know we wouldn't have known what a number bond was ourselves. Yes. Um, so those are, yeah, they're definitely barriers. They're barriers that can be overcome. At the end of the day, the parent wants to get to that point of like, what do I need to be doing to do the best for my child? And we can present that if we could present that sort of briefly and concisely to that parent that they can go off and engage with their child, then that's job done. Really. Um, Fantastic. Um, any other, any other barriers, Sam? I love these. So a huge one is lack of time. And mm. I think you've got families working, you know, parents working multiple jobs and trying to fit it in. Um, you've got parents where working shifts and not necessarily, you know, they might be at home whilst the child's at school type thing those can be real barriers they can also be barriers in your more affluent families of parents are commuting in and coming home late or whatever it is i think with that 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 is difficult one way we can perhaps reframe it slightly is are we trying to sculpt out this perfect 30 minutes where the parent and child sit down to do homework or are we saying actually what we care about is the interactions and that parent is going shopping with their child. So maybe whilst they're going shopping with their child, can they also get their child to estimate how much it's going to be and then see how far they were wrong and play that little game, have that little conversation, or they are having bath time or dinner time. Can they share out the food? Can they, you know, look at volume and capacity during bath time, whatever it is. Are there opportunities that don't need you to sculpt out this magical yes. piece of time? Um, low parent numeracy. 
So national numeracy has some stats about it. Um, I'll probably get them wrong, but I think it's about 40% of parents in or adults in the UK have a math level lower than that of a nine-year-old. And um, so if you're setting 10-year-old maths and you can expect about two-fifths of your class are, are struggling to access that content. And when you come to secondary, it's obviously going up all the time. Yeah. Um, so low parent numeracy, but also maths anxiety. And, you know, you will have um, done lots of thinking and, and maths teachers have done lots of thinking around maths anxiety. But I think it applies not just to the child, but also to the parents. And getting maths homework can bring all that um, fear to the surface. Um, and then the final one I have on the list is that... Um, is that parents don't care. And I sort of put that on just to, to tackle that one because I'm like, that is fundamentally not true. It's fundamentally not true that parents don't care for their child. And we, you know, that's well evidenced. But it's often, you'll often hear teachers saying that they that they don't. And it's actually a mix of those other barriers. That's brilliant. Um, just one I just want to circle back to again is um, you've mentioned throughout uh, throughout this, this idea of nudges, this idea of kind of tapping into behavioural science and so on. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about that, um, Tom. What would be, if you want to use a maths example or getting a reading example or something, well, what are some of those nudges that perhaps your platform uses or that you know schools could use or whatever that, that push people to do the, the right kind of behaviour? Um, yeah, great question. So I think the nudge theory is a combination. It often boils down to text messages. They often use text because texts are pervasive. Pretty much everyone can receive a, a text yeah. message. And then they look at the wording of the text and the timing of the text and that sort of thing to, to see how it um, influences people's behavior. Um, so I think for us, it's about being really trying to use the data that we're collecting to encourage those families that are least likely to engage to engage. So one of the things that we've learned is um, the University of Chicago looked at about half a million activities that were completed on our site, and they found a statistically significant result, which was that the children eligible for free to meals completed the activities on average 30 minutes later in the day than their wow. more affluent peers. And at this stage, we have no idea why that is. but we can use that to say, actually, if they're eligible for free school meals, let's send that text message nudge 30 minutes later. Yes. And then you're probably more likely to be at that point where they're ready to sit down. If you're sending someone an email at 8 a.m. and then the child doesn't come home till half past three and the parent comes home at seven and then they're not doing it, then um, then is that really the most effective uh, yes. method? Um, another little insight that we had was around um, when teachers set homework and when parents complete or families complete homework. Again, this is on our platform, primary school children, but the majority of teachers were setting topics on Mondays or Fridays. Mm -hmm. um, you can sort of see from a teacher point of view, particularly if you're a primary teacher and you see them every day, um, you might set it at the beginning of the week so it's done throughout the week, or you might yeah. set it at the end so it's done over the, homework, uh, yeah. over the weekend. And what we found is that the vast majority of parents, actually in both cases, are completing the homework on Sunday afternoon. Uh... It's the all oh, right it's sunday afternoon we need yeah. to get it done before your new school week yeah and so if you're not careful you're you're sending a letter home saying that there's some homework in the homework diary or whatever on a friday afternoon it's getting wildly ignored yes. then you're reminding them on a tuesday afternoon and it's getting wildly ignored again and then you know it, it would have been done on the sunday afternoon but they weren't thinking about it then 
So simple change. Can we let them know it's released on the Friday, but in a soft way where it's sort of okay for it to be ignored? And then can we send them that text at 4 p.m. on the Sunday or an email or whatever else it is and be like, actually, that's the thing that's most likely to get you get you through. Um, the other bit about behavior science. So um, there was a little bit about, I think it was paying um, paying your council tax. And the letter went out that said something along the lines of 98% of the neighbors on your street have paid their council tax. Mm. Um, have you done it? And I've, I've thought it was a really interesting one because we don't want to say, 98% of the other parents in your class yes. have read with their child. Why haven't yeah. you? There's so much blame feeling. And, you know, as a parent, you feel so guilty about so much of this stuff. But are there a ways, are there ways that we can use some of those other insights that are found in other areas of nudge theory that can have been shown to have really great impact and find positive ways of, of building them into, um, into the parent uh, engagement? Um, but then the other piece to remember is you can... If you wanted to, the homework gets sent on Monday. You could text an email every single day between the Monday and the Sunday, and you could make it quite likely that that parent did the activity on the Sunday. Or another example, you could email and text a parent every day to read with their child, and you probably get quite likely that at the beginning they would read with their child every day. But come two years' time, they're going to be so sick of it that they're not going to have done that. And so it's, it's as well about how do you get them to stop doing it for you? You don't want them mm. to be um, to be reading because they're getting your text, so that you know, so that yeah. they're ticking that off. You want it to become this behavior and motivation that's becoming internalized and becoming habitualized, so that even one when you step away as an intervention or as a teacher or what have you over the summer holidays, let's say that parent carries on reading with their child or they carry on having those conversations, and that's how you try to shift from um, the sort of short-term interactions to that longer-term behavior change absolutely brilliant um last one i want to ask on, on this on, on on norms and, and nudges and um, i've spoke to peps mccray fairly recently on the show and he, he written a wonderful book on motivation and motivation for, for teachers and he talks a lot about norms and he, he does a similar example that you mentioned there with with the council tax thing and, and translates it into the classroom and says Whereas some teachers, when they get the homework in, will say, four of you haven't done your homework. He said, if you flip it around and say, 26 of you have done exactly what I wanted you to do, which is your which is your homework, you've set it out like this and so on. You create that positive norm that, that then the other four want to get involved and, and so on and so forth. Now, it, it strikes me that, as you've mentioned there, as a parent, if, if I got a text saying, ninety, you know, 98% of parents are reading with their child each night and I wasn't, I definitely feel terrible about it, but I think I'd I think I'd do it. I think that would be like a kind of kick up the bum that I would need to do it. So I'm interested, but I can also see the flip side, whereas I'd be feeling really guilty and bad about it. So I'm fascinated about the kind of wording of some of these messages, perhaps that you're using um, on the platform or that you're aware that schools are using. Like what if you can't go that far to establishing that norm? How far can you go? Well, what, what's some of the wording that, that's used in these messages, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think um, I think what Peps is saying is that he's almost not speaking to the four that haven't done their homework. Yeah, he's yeah. he's speaking to the twenty six and he's rewarding them, and he's yes. saying let's focus on the reward and the positivity, and let's not focus on giving ah, detention yes. to the ones that haven't done yes, it. And yes. so I think within a classroom setting that works, and, and actually we do similar, which is um, when the when the parents and children have done an activity together at home, regardless of 
how right they got it because there's no right yeah. answers but the fact they've done that engagement means they get a little reward and in our site it's they have a little character and they get a new item of clothing they can dress them up yeah. with um and that then allows the teacher to really celebrate those that have been doing the engagement and i think in our point of view you could also say well done to 26 of you for having read with your parents last night yeah. like here's your reward for having done that you've got to be conscious of that par- that child who through no fault of their own, hasn't done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But if you can, um, if you can do that, maybe you can get to the point that that child is going home and tugging on the parent's arm and saying, <laughs> "You know, Dad, I really want you to read with me because I want to collect a little earring for my <laughs> character, or whatever yes. it is. Like, it doesn't really matter." Um, and if you've got a parent that you know doesn't really care about reading doesn't really want to do it having their child nudging them saying look can we do this together it's a pretty good route to get in and to to get that to happen so potentially there's a route through the um the parents i think sorry through the children i think another option is with those parents where you're not getting through and those children aren't getting that engagement at home are there other opportunities and like this is really a last a last resort but like is it possible that that parent could, that child could read with an older sister or brother mm. or what have you, and still get that same sort of support, and hence get their little reward? Are there ways that failing that they could do it with a grandparent or a teaching yes, assistant yes. or someone else, like somewhere that they can they can still get that little one to one time that we care about so much? And obviously, the parent is the is the main goal and what we're we're trying to get towards. But if we don't want to isolate that child, who really it's no fault of their own, then then are there other ways we can help them towards it so um it's again i would say in summary it's difficult and it's walking a tightrope mm. it's also understanding that parents is not a simple group like who are yep. parents they're everyone and so yep. different parents will feel really differently about different things that you send out um but it's being thoughtful about it in your approach and you know trying trying to work out the solution i think is is the biggest first step it's dead interesting, is it? I find it fascinating when behavioural science comes into play. Um, whenever you want any kind of action from from a group of people or an individual, it's something you've got to be conscious of. I promise I won't ask you any more on this. If you'll just forgive me this one thing, I just re I just want to get into the mind. Like if if I'm a parent here and you, you've you've identified that I'm going to homework on a Sunday is perhaps when I'm going to be doing it, and my phone beeps. Well, what's the message say? Does it just is it just like as simple as reminder to do the homework, or is it a bit kind of more sophisticated? than that what what, what's it look like yeah good question so i think we um we looked at why is a parent like what does a parent need from that point that the text Mm. comes through to when they do it and i think they um they need a reminder that it's for their child and it's for the best for their child um we also thought that there was a a particularly with the maths a link to the real world like why this topic matters Uh. at all um and so it's trying to i guess move it away from you need to do this so that we've pleased mrs smith at school (laughs) and more towards actually your child we think your child will really enjoy this activity because we know child doesn't enjoy it is a really big barrier we think your child will really enjoy this game um so the teddy bear picnic activity um because it's hands-on and it uses their favorite teddies and there's food and uh whatever secondly it's it's going to be about um using a part whole model don't worry you've never heard about that like you're not expected to um but the maths will be easy and you'll be able to understand it and you know we'll we'll help you there and then thirdly um 
this is really important because when your child starts to share things out with their friends or you know other instances they're going to be using this math so this math isn't actually just for now or this topic this is really for their life where they're going to be exploring fractions and sharing equally and that sort of thing so it's some of those themes obviously you're limited by text messages in a way you're less so with emails so we use emails as well Mm. but um but trying to get some of those themes that's motivating aside from just you need to do this to keep somebody at school happy fascinating fascinating um was was there anything else that you wanted to to discuss i know you've mentioned the uh, learning with parents program um do you want to just talk to us about that um yeah sure i i guess um in in a way what we're um what we're offering for primary schools is about five or six years of having thought really hard about this stuff and having put together a solution that we think um and the evidence shows from the schools we work with is actually really effective at engaging all parents and encouraging all parents to engage in their children's learning. Like I said earlier, we report back on pupil premium versus non-pupil premium as a, as a charity, that's our main sort of focus and where we put all this emphasis on uh, behavioral insights, et cetera, is about those um, parents facing the biggest barriers. And we can see that actually that program starting to really um, get, close the number of activities that your more affluent and your less affluent um, Mm. children do on average and we think that actually compared to most homework um, it's it's making some some great strides so I think there's a um, there's a pitch around you're able to replace your homework we know that 90% of teachers said it was easier than setting normal homework because they're not running around trying to find out what to do but also it's engaging the parents in a really authentic way and it's online to come offline it's not more screen time for the kids it's come and use this video to then go and play that thing in the real world and and have that learning um so yeah that's the the learning with parents program um as you say i feel like i've mentioned it throughout um various bits and pieces the other bit of our work as a charity is we sort of know that a tech platform will never solve the problems we're looking to solve um on its own so we're also really interesting collaborations and that's where we work with a lot of different organizations we run something called the parental engagement forum so a group of organizations who are looking to support parents in um, disadvantaged communities to engage in their children's learning and a lot of it's just bringing a focus to this thing sharing the research sharing best practice with each other and admitting that we don't know everything and uh, and nor do other programs and actually by sharing our our resources perhaps we're we're better able to tackle what is really a huge issue um, Fantastic. Superb. And um, was there anything else at all that you feel listeners uh, that we haven't covered that you th- you want to tell listeners about before we move on to your reflections and your big three? Um, I'm going to say no, but it might come up later because I did think of one earlier, but I didn't write it down. So I can't think. All right. No worries at all. Right. Well, we'll move on to your reflection then, Tom. Um, what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Um, I think the... I think slightly as a charity, we're guilty of saying parental engagement in learning is the most important thing and parental involvement in schooling, we think just sort of supports it so we don't focus on it. But actually your questions around uh, open days and parents' evenings are are really interesting and really challenging. And actually from most schools' point of view, that's their starting point and that's Mm. their first interactions with parents. And so I think we need in our work to perhaps come a little bit, start with schools a little bit more where they're at which is around those parents and those open evenings and like what can we do i think we have if we thought about it some some interesting um 
advice that we could give. And I also think your point about open evenings, whether we like them or loathe them, they are often the first interaction between schools and parents. So if we're talking about um, setting up positive relationships and power dynamics, that's probably really where it starts and wasn't something I'd really thought of before. Fantastic. Superb. Right. Well, I'll hand over to you for your big three, Tom. So this is your opportunity to share websites, blog posts, whatever you like. Um, and we'll put links to these in the show notes so listeners can check them out. So what are you going to go for? Uh, sounds great. So I'm going to start with um, Parent Ping, which is a spin-off of TeacherTap, um, uh, focusing on parents. And the stat I told you about parents um, often being called mum or dad by the teachers, but not wanting to be called mum and dad themselves came from uh, parent wow. ping. They're also doing some really interesting stuff where they ask the same questions to parents and to teachers through teacher tap and parent nice. ping, and then are able to to look at the difference. Um, so I would say um, it's great. It's going to give us some really in- interesting insights. The one caveat is the only parents who are going to be coming on parent ping answering those questions day in day out are your engaged, interested parents. Yes. So there's still other work for us to do as a as a sort of sector in those parents who who won't be able to have that sort of social capital to come forward and have that confidence and try and get that. Um, so that was one thing. Um, the next one, if it's okay, a little just pl- plug for our own blog. So sure. on Learning with Parents, there's a latest news section. We're putting out lots of um, blogs and sessions, um, podcasts, etc., that we're doing about different topics related to parental engagement. Um, we had a recent session with Enrich, um, and before that one with the Education Endowment Foundation, looking at different aspects of parental engagement so um, you might want to head there and then finally um, one a podcast from the states um, which is called nice white parents and I don't know have have you heard it Greg no I haven't no Um, so it's about a group of well-intentioned parents who try and uh, influence and change the education system and looking at some of the knock-on impact of their um, their approach and I think it's just a really interesting um, reflection on how hard some of these challenges are and how with all the right intentions, your actions aren't necessarily supportive to uh, a more equitable education system. So um, a podcast that people might find interesting. Wow. They're three. Yeah. We haven't had any of those three come up, which rarely happens with a big three these days. So they're, they're fantastic ones to, to check out. Well, Tom, this has been brilliant. Um, as I said, as soon as I was about three minutes into your session, uh, listening to it after the conference, I knew I wanted to get you on the show because just so, it's such a big topic. And it's, Again, it's it's something that it's, it's perhaps easy for an individual teacher to kind of take for granted or think it's too big an issue for me to think about or have any control over. But again, you've suggested some really nice practical things that individual teachers can do, but also school leaders and so on can do going forward. So it's been, an, it's been a, yeah, I, I've learned loads and it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for your time, Tom. Thank you so much. One, one last pitch for parental engagement. I feel of like course. often... Um, uh, interventions are put forward which just add more onto a teacher's plate and it's you should do this and you should do this and you should do this and parental engagement can feel like that but actually if we do it well then there's an opportunity here for us to be taking things off the teacher's plate and saying you know what let's get parents as more of a partner in this and less of something that we're having to deal so um deal with so i wonder if there's a, a way that actually this can reduce teachers workload rather than continue to add to it Brilliant. Fantastic last point. Nice one, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Greg. (laughs) 
So, there you have it. There was my interview with the fantastic Tom Harbour. I have a lot of time for Tom. Really, really good guest. Really, really interesting. Super knowledgeable as well. Now, I'm sure you've got loads of takeaways yourself, and I don't want to clog up uh, your time too much, but here are a few of my thoughts that I've been thinking about since, uh, since speaking to Tom. The first, and I think this is the most important one, is this power imbalance. I'd never thought of this before. Just those little things that, that Tom was talking about, like parents' evening, where, where uh, even if the parents aren't sat on the small chairs, although I could well imagine that happening, certainly at primary school, even in secondary school, there's something kind of very formal and very much the teacher is in charge in parents' evening with the way often the desks are laid out. And certainly when, if parents are kind of sat down waiting to see the teacher, it's almost like being sat down outside the headmaster's office when they were in school. And it's only when Tom started talking about perhaps parents who'd had negative experiences when they themselves were at school, when I really started to think, wow, that could be actually quite quite an anxiety-inducing situation for parents. Um, then reports as well is, is, is another one. The, the way they kind of get sent home, it's, it's all very much the, the teacher's in charge. And of course the teacher is in charge, but it, it, it sounds so obvious to say, but of course the, the parents are adults and they have just an, an important role to play in their child's education, if not a more important role to play than the teacher. And it's, it's about kind of respecting that, recognizing that, and just subtle kind of slight things that we can do to, to make it a bit more of a level playing field. And phone calls home is another one. I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in, in a minute or so um, in, a, in another section. So the power imbalance, I think that's the biggest one I'm thinking about. The situations where I'm either face-to-face -face with parents or um, it's a kind of group session, there's a load of parents there, or I'm on the phone to parents and so on, or I'm communicating with parents in any way, is there, is there any way I can redress that power imbalance to make it less, as I say, potentially anxiety inducing and, and cause the parents to kind of shut down and be a bit defensive and so on. Um, homework was an interesting one as well. Um, and again, I can see this, this applying far more at primary school, but I, I certainly think there's a secondary school element to this as well, that if we are giving homework to our students, do we expect our pet, the, pet, the students' parents to be involved in? Making sure we write the homework, whether it's the homework or the instructions that accompany it, to, to kind of account for that and, and allow for that and appreciate that that's the case. Um, a classic example of this, I, I think I've spoke about this before on the podcast. Uh, in, in my uh, previous school, we used to do a thing in year seven where we had projects for the students to do. And there was things like um, the students had to work out how many times you reckon you could sing Jingle Bells in a 24-hour period and how many crisps would cover the playground and all this kind of thing. And the idea was to, to show students that maths was interesting, get them being a bit creative, but also hopefully kind of involve the family with it. But I don't think I ever made that explicitly clear, certainly not in the instructions. I told the kids, but then there's, you know, chance of things being lost in translation or not even mentioned and so on. So if we want the parents to be involved, finding ways to make that explicitly clear and again, not fall victim of this potential power imbalance. And the final thing I just wanted to say, and this, I think this is the, the kind of main thing to reflect upon. And we, uh, I know we have lots of SLT listen to this and they've got... The, the power um, and the responsibility to impact things like parents' evening, reports, and so on. But well, what can individual classroom teachers do um, to make sure that their 
the, the parents of children are involved in the child's learning, engaged and involved in the child's learning, because we know it plays such an important role. So first, I think regular contacts are a, a key one, and it's, it's such a bloody nightmare to do. It takes so much time. If you, I mean, think, you're teaching potentially 150, 200 different kids, more if you're a, if you're a humanities teacher or something like that. It's impossible to, to schedule in a phone call home every week and so on uh, with parents. But what I, the, the, the trap I think I found myself falling into is any phone call home is inevitably a negative thing. It's always for some behavioral incident and so on. So I think two things there, as much contact as, as, as possible without making the workload unsustainable with parents and also just trying to vary things. So every now and again, the phone call home is just a bit of a check-in thing or ideally a positive thing, just to say that Mirren's done absolutely fantastic today, came up with a great answer and so on. It, it almost, it always blew me away the power that had. <laughs> power in like the kids would always say something they, when they came in the next day they'd always say oh you phoned my mum last night or you phoned whoever it was last night they, they always found out about it and they, they always found it a, a really kind of powerful thing that either kind of for, for good or kind of scared them a little bit and so on so i think that's a really important thing to do and as i, as I say respecting obviously the workload and the, the lack of time teachers have uh, in those same situations be aware of that power imbalance phone calls home if if you the parents of the child were used to getting phone calls home themselves when they were kids and that was a negative thing speaking to a teacher can be quite scary if, if all your interactions with teachers in the past have been getting a bit of a bollocking uh, sorry i should have uh, give you a bit of a warning i was going to say a naughty word then apologies if you've got small children listening so just being aware of that and trying to break the ice a little bit. And I, I think regular contact helps this. It's always going to be a bit of a weird one the first time parents speak to a teacher and teacher speaks to a parent. But the more contact that you, you get in and so on and so forth, the, the easier that becomes. I should say, by the way, um, my two schools that I've taught at, I've been looking to teach there for quite a number of years. And it de lots of things get easier the longer you stay at schools, but certainly things in terms of dealing with parents i think get a hell of a lot easier because the chances are you've taught a lot of brothers and sisters of those parents and i used to absolutely love it when you'd see parents regularly um you know sometimes you, uh, one of my previous school i think it was there seven years some parents there'd be each year i'd see the same set of parents you know perhaps once or twice throughout that year every single year for seven years and it's, it's brilliant you you almost become a part of the the fabric of the school and the more exposure you can have to parents the more you can interact with them the stronger the relationship and so on and so forth and the final thing i just wanted to say is that something i certainly find with parents is that they, they always seem to assume that the most useful thing that they can do to help support their child with their learning is to be on hand to be able to help them with all their homework but if you think about it, that's so impractical. Like particularly when kids get to GCSE levels, you, parents have got to be a bit of an expert at every single subject. They've got to know how to factor equations, translate from French, interpret a poem, and all this guys. It's, it's just not going to happen. So what I always say to parents is the most important thing is not that you are able to help directly, but you know where to find that help. And in terms of maths, that may be contacting the school's teacher, but more, more likely than, than not, it may be knowing that for example you've got a subscription to Hegarty Maths and knowing how to how to navigate that or as Tom spoke about BBC Bite Size or My Maths or, or whatever whatever it, whatever it may be I'm a bit biased here but ED, uh, ED Family could be one option for this but parents knowing where to go and then perhaps going to that place with their child sitting down and maybe trying to figure it out themselves or maybe letting the, the, the child lead the way and so on and I think as teachers we have a responsibility here to make sure that parents know 
where they can go for help. So the, the kid, if the kid comes home and says, look, I can't do this homework, the parent has got, I've got an option, can say, okay, well, let's try this. Let's sit down and let's go to this website or let's log into this platform and so on and so forth. And that's, for me, is the responsibility of the teacher to make that as clear as possible. And often sending that home on a letter and um, first day in school that gets lost isn't the way to do it and so on. So it's about finding ways, whether it's the school website or whatever it may be and so on. Anyway, I've prattled on far too much. Um, just a couple of things before we wrap up. Uh, firstly, obviously, massive thank you to Tom. I really, really enjoyed uh, speaking to him. Check out the links to his big three as well. Uh, they're all on the show notes. Some great, absolutely great stuff there. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And the final one, uh, thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners. Um, I'm recording this at the end, oh, kind of mid, mid-July. Uh, at the end of, oh, is this the worst academic year or was last year worse? I don't know. It's, it's a tricky one. But thank you for sticking with the show. Um, it's so nice when people drop messages on Twitter or wherever just to say that they're enjoying it and uh, maybe it's helping them in a tricky time or so on or they've learned something from it. Um, I'm going to take a break, uh, certainly over summer, maybe a little bit longer. I'm, I'm not 100%, obviously. M many listeners will know about my health, both physical and mental, have, have certainly not been great for the last uh, couple of years or so. And this podcast does take up a fair bit of time. So I think I'll take may maybe take a little break. I'll probably be back with a little back-to-school special. I'll, I'll try and rope Joe, Joe Morgan into just doing a little back-to-school one just to set the scene for the year. But then I might just take a, a, another little break away. I don't know. We'll see. But a massive thank you for, for tuning in. I hope you still enjoy these podcasts as, as much as I do. So thanks so much for listening. Um, if you've already broken up, congratulations. If you're breaking up soon, uh, you'll get there. And just make sure you have a lovely, restful summer. Whew, you've certainly earned it. You earn it every year, but this year perhaps more than ever. You take care. Bye for now. <laughs>